Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at the Village Church Denton in Denton, Texas. Thank you, uh, Bo, for that kind introduction, and it is a delight, absolutely delight to be here. I've really been moved uh, by the beauty and God showing up this morning already, so thanks for coming. Let me start with a little uh, Bible trivia question uh, here at the beginning. Who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? I think most of us think of Paul. Is it the Apostle Paul? Maybe John? Uh, He wrote a very long gospel and then several letters as well. Both of those would be good answers. Paul did actually write more books of the New Testament than any other single person, but actually the winner of the most words written by a single author in the New Testament doesn't go to Paul. It actually goes to Luke, to the evangelist or writer Luke, coming in with a solid 27% of all the verbiage of the New Testament. Paul has 23%, just so you know, so it was close. Luke... An educated Gentile physician, we know from the tradition, who often accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys, we see. He wrote two really important books. One is a gospel, the gospel according to Luke, and the other, uh, the book we call Acts, which tells the story of the early church. And together, that's 52 chapters of the New Testament. Now, one thing to observe, whether you're new to the Bible, have been reading it for your whole life, is that... I don't know if you have noticed this before, that the vast majority of the real estate in the New Testament is not given over to straightforward, direct teaching about doctrine or ethics or morality, what we might think when we think about Christianity. Rather, most of the New Testament, and really most of the whole Bible, is a narrative. It's stories. This is true not only of Luke, Acts, but also, of course, these other books, Matthew and Mark and John. If you put all those together with Acts, over 60% of the New Testament, and it's even higher when you look at the whole Bible together, is stories about God's work in the world. And these are not just any stories. They are stories that focus in the New Testament on one person, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary, born in Bethlehem in the convenient year for us of zero. Just kidding. We figured that out later. And Christianity, you see, is not first and foremost a set of beliefs or a set of behaviors, though it's both of those things, but it's actually the revelation of a person. Christianity is not first and foremost the teaching of a certain truth, even though it is that, but it's the invitation to follow a person. This is why most of the New Testament consists of stories, of biographies, actually, of Jesus. Now, unlike other stories we might read, even other biographies, but other stories you might read, like, say, in the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, in a book like First and Second Samuel, which has a lot of overlap with the Gospels, actually, in terms of the way it writes, You actually have quite a few characters who are important. You think of the prophet Samuel, you think of the first Saul, the first king Saul, you think of the great king David. And while David is the most important person in 1st and 2nd Samuel, he's not the only character. But what's interesting is that in the New Testament, and especially clearly in the Gospels, they focus 
entirely or almost entirely just on one person. Almost every single story is just about Jesus. And yeah, he has disciples, some of whom we don't really hear anything about, but we hear some about like Peter and James and John, but really the stories about them are very short and they're never just about them, their interactions with Jesus. But there is one guy, there is one guy in the Gospels, a particularly hairy guy, who the Gospels give more airtime to than any other character. The Gospels are still about 95% about Jesus, but there's one guy who shows up as particularly important. And it's the man who is called John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And this John, he deserves special mention because he makes a strong appearance at the beginning of the Gospels. In fact, we meet him before we meet Jesus even. He appears in all four of the Gospels right at the beginning. He appears actually several times in the stories. We learn about his birth. Then we learn about his influential public preaching. We learn about his imprisonment and finally his death. And also we learn that he's weird. (laughs) He's rather mysterious. He's wild. Some of you are too young to remember this old Christian artist, Keith Green. Whenever I think of John the Baptist, I think of, he probably looked like Keith Green, kind of a wild man, right? I can imagine in the parties in Jerusalem, the dinner parties, that John the Baptist is the kind of guy people talked about, right? Because he was so weird. Well, today, our text from Holy Scripture is from Luke 3, 1 to 20. We've just heard it read. And what I want to do simply is take a little closer look at the story to make sure we understand what it's saying. And then I simply want to ask two questions. Two questions that will help us say, what in the world is this story from 2,000 years ago? What does that have to do with my life today and your life today? Before we do that, I would like us just to pause once more and let me, let me just pray for God to draw near. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we... Uh, acknowledge that uh, in all the midst of everything else going on in our lives, uh, in your providence, we are here this morning together. And so we humbly say to you, come, you are the one that we need. Some of us today, our hearts are very hard. Some are numb from pain and fear. Some are full of joy. Some are confused, full of anxiety. Regardless, do what we cannot do for ourselves. Break through and speak. Speak through me, to me, and to all of us, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Okay. If you have a Bible, it's great. Grab, grab one from the pew in front of you or the little thing in front of you, whatever it's called. Um, maybe if you don't have one and you're hoping to get a date, lean over next to somebody that has one, right? Whatever it is, and let's look at Luke 3 here for a second. Now you all feel awkward about the person you're sitting next to. Sorry about that. So, Luke chapter 3. Let me just read these first two verses here again. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trichonitis, Lysanias was the Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now Luke, very educated, very skilled writer, he is 
always interested in situating the stories of Jesus into a really a rooted time and a place, particularly the Roman Empire that's ruling over Palestine at this time all over, and also within the Jewish history as well. He mentions who the high priests are. This is something that he does all throughout the first few chapters and all throughout the book. He's constantly rooting it in a real time and place. And in this specific time and place, we learn something absolutely crucial to the story and something rare, and that is that the word of God came to someone. The word of God came to someone. What, that is massively important. We also don't know exactly what it means. Did he hear something audibly or did it, he just know that God was speaking to him? We don't know, but we know throughout the Bible that it is through God speaking. It's through his word that everything happens. Think back to Genesis one. It is how the creation itself comes about. It's through God speaking. And then all throughout the Bible, we see that God changes the history of the world and people like you and me through his word coming. And that reminds us, in fact, Luke is intentionally reminding us, I think, of what happened many times, rarely, but it did happen many times, rarely over the course of the thousands of years of history, but it did happen where the word of God would come to a prophet like Isaiah or Micah, or Samuel, or Amos, or Jeremiah, and now who later in the in Luke, Jesus will call the last prophet, the greatest prophet of the whole Old Testament, to John. God gave his words to speak to his prophets. It wasn't a common occurrence, but when it did happen, it changed history. And so this is a big deal Luke wants us to see right at the beginning. The word comes to this guy, John, and then Luke tells us it comes to John in the wilderness. When you and I think of the wilderness, we probably think of remote parts of Wisconsin or Minnesota or maybe Colorado or maybe, you know, between Denton and Flower Mound. I don't know what the wilderness is for you, right? That's not entirely wrong. John is a wilderness guy. He's not a fancy clothed suburban dweller. He's not sitting in his desk job and then has a light bulb about God. He is in the wilderness. Now, Luke actually doesn't tell us a lot about what he looks like, but Matthew and Mark do. And I think it's worth bringing in here at this point. Matthew and Mark tell us exactly what John's closet contained. Actually, that was the problem. He didn't have a closet. He had one outfit, and it wasn't normal bathrobe-looking things that we dress our kids in for Christmas pageants. It wasn't even that. He had, Matthew and Mark tell us, some kind of one-piece garb made from a camel's hide, cinched up fashionably with a belt-like strap of animal skin. And on top of it all, I imagine, still in his unkempt beard, is the remains of his last meal. Yes, that wilderness delicacy, wild, unrefined honey, and crunchy locusts. Yes, the protein-packed migratory grasshopper of the Mediterranean world, not chocolate-covered. As I said... (laughs) This guy was weird. I mean, you could just get this sort of picture of what he was like. But the most important thing is deeper than all this. When Luke tells us that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, around the Jordan River, something is being communicated. And it is this, that God is on the move in history. All throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, there's a very clear message. God's people have rebelled. They have broken their covenant with God. 
And yet God has not abandoned them. Rather, there's a time coming when God will restore his reign, his kingdom upon the earth through the promised son of David. And this will happen in an unexpected way, but in a place that's very important, and that is precisely the River Jordan. And it's because, if you think back, whether you know it or not, I can just tell you, if you think back to the Old Testament, the River Jordan was very symbolically significant because it's where the people of God entered into the promised land. And now centuries later, they're under judgment and dispersion and under oppression by many, many different countries and hundreds of years of being oppressed by different empires, currently the Roman Empire. And the idea that when God is going to come and restore his reign upon the earth, a time of justice and peace and joy, that's going to happen, the prophets say, at and through the river Jordan. And so it's very important, you see, these first couple of verses of the story, because if we understand what's happened before this story, what Luke tells us about John and the word of God coming to the wilderness is very weighty. Then we see in the next couple of verses in three to six that the word of God comes to John in the wilderness and it has an effect. He starts to preach. The word of God that came inside of him now comes through him and comes out in proclamation. And that proclamation we can see in verses 3 and 4 is very specific. For all who have ears to hear, God is calling people to repent, to turn around, to reconsider, to reorient their lives, to receive a baptism which is a ceremonial washing in water that symbolizes something bigger And that is a cleansing, a washing away of sin. The word that came from God to John was powerful and active and clear. Forgiveness is available to all who will turn and repent. And then we get a further explanation of what's going on. All of this, if you look at verses 4 to 6, is coming about because this is what God said would happen in the book of Isaiah. God's salvation is coming. Now those six verses are really the first move in our story. There are two more phases that we can look at more quickly. Let your eyes go down to starting in verse 7. The second phase of our story is verses 7 to 14. And what what actually happened in verses 1 to 6 is that that was kind of a general overview of describing what was happening in John the Baptist's days. It wasn't just one day. It was We don't know if it's weeks or months or how long, but there were people, he was out there preaching, baptizing people, and people were coming from all over. So word of mouth had spread from Jerusalem and all over. They were all coming to where John was in the Jordan. It probably went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe months even. And then we see in verses 7 to 14, Luke kind of drills down and says, okay, that was the general thing of what's happening. Let me show you some little stories or vignettes of what happens when people would come to John, what he said and what they said. Let me read for you verses 7 to 9 again. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, Welcome. No, he says, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay. In a way that's not entirely guest friendly, 
and felt needs preaching, John refers to his crowd again as snakes, as a brood of vipers. And he warns them that repentance, the repentance he is preaching needs to be legit. It needs to be real and authentic. It needs to be marked by an actual change of our lives or else it's not real. You see, the opposite response of some people that he's responding to, especially many Jewish people in this day, and we would be no different if we were there, is that this wild, crazy message from John, it's a little too much. We don't need all that. We have Abraham as our father. We have a heritage. We have a tradition. We have an ethnicity. We have a, a race, even, that is who we are, and this is enough. We don't need this craziness and this sort of radical message of repentance. And John is very clear That's not going to do it because God is on the move and doing something new and no one can rely on their past or rely on their heritage or their tradition or their race or ethnicity or anything because God is on the move and it is a call to a wholehearted repentance that really is like a tree bearing real fruit. This is intense. I can imagine everybody had their phones out and are watching this sort of interaction and recording it, right? To post it on YouTube dot whatever it was back in those days, right? Or maybe they're chiseling little things, taking memes of it. We don't know. But it was an intense scene, right? This is not, this is, and you can't not watch it, right? It's one of those things, you know, you know, you shouldn't be watching that fight scene or whatever, but you can't not watch it. This is super intense. This is not what you'd expect, maybe even from the Bible, this sort of harsh interaction. Then, it, then we see in verses 10 to 14 that the crowd responds, at least those who are still listening and haven't walked away in anger. In 10 to, verses 10 to 14, John unpacks for us, or Luke unpacks for us by listening to John, what this real fruit-bearing repentance looks like. He gives some practical examples, and we can multiply these, but here's some examples. If you have more than you need, Repentance looks like helping those in need. That's pretty challenging. Verse 11. If you're a tax collector, collect your taxes honestly, not greedily ripping people off and taking more than you're required, verses 12 to 13. If you're a soldier, which would mean more like a Roman military police force who are sovereign, they can do whatever they want to the oppressed people, John says, don't use that position of power to take from people and manipulate and gain more power and money. Instead, do what's right. Be content with what God has given you. Verse 14. All examples of what repentance looks like. And that leads us to the third and final phase of the story, which is verses 15 to 20. You see, our story actually could have ended there. That would have been powerful, interesting. John's this amazing character. He calls people to repentance. But the most important thing is yet to happen, and it's in verses 15 to 20. You see, again, the Jewish people in Jesus' day were in dire straits for centuries, longer than the United States has been a country. For longer than that, the Jewish people have been oppressed and captured and killed, heavily taxed, enslaved by, again, a whole bunch of other nations. It just happens to currently be the Roman Empire at this time. And verse 15 tells us that for many, many Jews in John's day, they are longing for, just as you and I would be, longing for and desperate for God to return, for him to fulfill his promises to come and bring his reign upon the earth 
earth, where they're free from oppression, to save them, not just in this kind of metaphorical way or abstract spiritual way, but to actually rescue them from oppression. They're longing for this, for God to send the son of David, which the Bible calls the Messiah, the anointed one, which becomes the word Messiah, and that comes in Greek to the word Christos, which comes in English to the word Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It is, it's a title for the son of David who's anointed. That's the, the hope that a Christ would come to rescue them. Maybe John's the one. After all, the word of God has come to him. He's in the wilderness by the Jordan, as was prophesied. He's telling us that God's on the move, about to return to save his people. Maybe it's finally happening. And so people are wondering, it says in verse 15, maybe this is the one. But John shocks everyone and is very clear in what he says in verses 16 to 17. Yes, God has spoken to me. Yes, I'm a prophet. Yes, God's power is through me. But the reality is, he says, I'm actually nothing. There is another one, capital A, capital O, another one coming, the true longed-for Messiah. And this one is so much greater than even the mighty John, so much greater in wisdom and strength and in power that John says, I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie his sandals. Yes, I'm baptizing you with water, and that's important, John says. I'm calling you to repentance, but the one who is coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that spirit and fire baptism is going to be like the separating of wheat from chaff, gold from pebbles, paper and plastic, whatever else you want to call it, whatever you think about separating. It's a separation of life versus death. And then our story about John ends even more shockingly, with this dark turn. We just heard it read. John continues preaching. He's calling people to repentance. One of the things he does, he even calls out the ruler of the day, that Herod we met back in verse 1. He's so bold to call out the ruler and say, you're in an adulterous relationship. And so, surprisingly, our story ends not with John retiring And people giving him a little plaque, well done, good and faithful servant, or something. You know, 13,000 baptisms, congratulations, or something. (laughs) It ends with him locked up and shut up in prison. And Lou's going to tell us later that he stays there till he's beheaded. So that's our story. I said I have two questions, and here's the first one. What does God want us to learn from John's life? What does God want us to learn from John's life? As I said at the beginning, actually most of the Bible is stories. And I don't know if you've considered this before, but one of the main reasons that's the case is because the way stories function is that they teach us through examples of other people about our own lives. They teach us through Narratives are stories about different ways of being in the world and what the result of those will be. This is the intentional power of stories or narratives, the way God has made us and the world. I, mean, I could give you a million examples of this. Times I, I read a lot of fiction, read a lot of stories, or even you know historical stories as well, and the power of them. But just on my mind recently is The Greatest Showman, which I think some of you have seen. And uh, we have I have a musical family, and I love it, and uh, listen to the soundtrack a lot recently, and have seen it a couple times. Well, 
that, that story, I've just been amazed how much it's impacted me. It's not perfect in every way, right? But you have this story, and I won't spoil it for you beyond this, but it's about, it's this, you know, sort of stylized story about P.T. Barnum, who learns that living for sort of applause and performance, even with some sincerity, you know, that he loves making people happy and he also loves the applause, that that's not enough. And that that can actually lead to destruction. As a Enneagram 3-4, which, or ENFJ, or whatever, if you know what any of those things mean, um, as one who's always tempted to find my identity in my performance. Some of you know that. When I saw that movie and listened to the songs, I, I, was, I was weeping, right? Because I saw myself in that story, and I was changed by it. I was affected by it. I, it helped me examine what am I living for? That's how God makes stories. That's why most of the Bible is stories. It's not an earning my way to salvation or something. It's the power of the transformation of narratives. You see, God didn't have to tell us this story about John, and he didn't have to give us all these details or put it right at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We need to ask, why did God put this here? What are we supposed to learn from John? And I think some beautiful, important things. You and I call, and you know, Matthew and Mark and later Christian tradition all call him John the Baptist. Just because I teach the Bible a lot, I'm always talking the Gospels, I've shortened it and I call him J the B regularly. And then that made me wonder, <laughs> what would his rap name have been, right? <laughs> Thankfully, with the help of the website myrapname.com, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, we can actually get a pretty good guess. Some of the suggestions that came back for John the B that seemed appropriate to me were Sinista Golden Johnny B, a.k.a. Special Smack, Audacious J-Clan, and this one especially, Grim J.B. Trip. I thought that was good, right? Now, don't go to myrapname.com right now during the sermon, please. If I hear chuckles in the next few minutes, I will know that you are totally busted, right? So, busted, right? Okay. But in verse 2, what's interesting about Luke 3 is that he actually doesn't call him John the Baptist. Matthew and Mark do, and Christian tradition does. He actually calls him by his more proper name, John the son of Zechariah. Now, the reason I think that's important is because I think it helps us answer who was this John and what are we supposed to learn from him? Because it refers back to the first two chapters of Luke. If you have a Bible, just flip back a, a page or two. Those of you who have been at, around Denton the last couple months will recall that Bo has been preaching from these beautiful and amazing stories from Luke 1 and 2. And it, Luke 1 and 2 are really a, a prologue, a beautifully crafted prologue to the whole book. It's like an overture before the play starts. And in these wonderful stories, we actually learn a lot about John because Luke 1 and 2 are uh, is a story of two parallel lives, John and Jesus. And we learn from about John that he is a relative of Jesus. We learn he's a distant cousin of some sort. We learn that he's a miracle baby. If you look back at Luke 1, 5 to 25, he was born by a divine act to a barren couple. 
Zechariah and the, the priest and Elizabeth. We learn in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, that he'll be a great joy and a delight. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. We learn that John is going to be used by God to bring many people back to the Lord. He's going to go forward in the spirit of the and power of Elijah. He's going to turn people's hearts, making a people prepared for the Lord. All of which, of course, is exactly what happens in chapter 3. That's what's beautiful about this. We learn in the last part of Luke chapter 1, especially verses 76 and following, that when his father, Zechariah, who had become mute because the angel, he didn't believe the angel's message, when he's finally able to speak, he sings, he praises God, and he says about his own son by via the Spirit's prophecy that he's going to bring great rejoicing. People are going to, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to give knowledge of the, of God's salvation and forgiveness, a light to darkness. He's going to be strong and live in the wilderness. All exactly what happens. That's all important, but it's still, we still have to ask, those aren't really things we can model our lives on. Those are things that are just true about John. What does God want us to learn from John? Well, we could talk about, in light of all that, his boldness, his faithfulness, uh, his sacrifices. But I especially want to point out what I think God wants to say this morning to us about this, how John embraces his role as not the most important person in his life. Yeah, Let me say that again. I think what, I, what we're especially commended to consider this morning is how John embraces his role as not the most important person in his life and as preparatory for someone greater. You may have heard the old story. I think it's true. Probably really happened. Sometimes these quotes aren't always true, but I think this one did happen. When the famous conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, Leonard Bernstein, was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? You know, is it the timpani? Is it the cello? Whatever it is, the bassoon. What's the most difficult instrument to play? He responded without hesitation, second violin. Because, he said, it's so hard to get anyone to embrace and play the secondary role with enthusiasm. Wow. Any second violinists in here? <laughs> They're all afraid to raise your hand, right? I understand. I've had a lot of kids in orchestra. I understand this. It's a very profound statement. And I think what the scriptures show us here in Luke 3, as well as in Matthew and Mark and John, is that John the Baptist gladly and willingly and wholeheartedly embraced and lived out his place and his role, not as the most important person, but as the mere preparation, the pointer to the one who really matters, to King Jesus, who alone can save and forgive and who will rule and reign as king over the universe. This was true even to the point of going from a season in his life when he was immensely popular, when everyone was flocking to hear him. He had his own disciples who followed him. In that moment, as well as in all the way to the darkest moment of his souls when he's languishing in prison and is finally beheaded, he saw his role as not about himself, but as about the Lord. And that is remarkable, and that is beautiful. If this is true of John, who in the salvation history of the world, please hear this, is way more important than any of us here. He's the one called that Jesus is going to call him the greatest prophet. The no one born of women is greater than him. 
Jesus says, if that's true of him, that he sees his role as secondary, how much more for you and me? You see, this all accords with exactly what Jesus teaches over and over again, that in the kingdom of God, the greatest one is the one who takes the lowly place of the servant and even the slave. And Jesus says, he even models that himself. He is the ultimate greatest one, and he chooses to submit himself in obedience to the point of death. That is the way things are in God's kingdom, and it is beautiful. What about you? You be honest, what's driving your desires, your motivation, your energy? Is it self-promotion, security, success, fame, the praise of others? It's not that all those things are necessarily wrong, but it's that God is calling us to something so much bigger and more beautiful than that a sold out passion a wholeheartedness that sees us as being on a mission for someone not just something but someone greater and that may sound like a negative thing but friends i hope you can begin to taste and see that that kind of way of being in the world is an invitation to amazing freedom Some of you know this, that when we stop living just for ourselves and catch a vision for something bigger and someone bigger, that's not a place of bondage. That allegiance where we bow ourselves down is the place of actual freedom. Because you can finally start to not just be full of anxiety and self-consumption and worry about your own fame and your money and your success. The only people that are free are the ones who bow their knee. To one who's worthy of it. I think John and all the other things he can teach us is such a beautiful picture of one who makes himself second and finds the joy and freedom of that. I said there were two questions. That's the first one. What does John, what does God want us to learn about John? Here's the second one. How is all of this really good news then? We saw from Luke 1 and 2 that John's coming is supposed to bring about joy and rejoicing. Did you catch that when Bo was reading it? Did you catch that verse, chapter 3, verse 18? Look at it there and let me read it for you. I was reading through Luke in preparation for this and reading through Luke 3, and I was really kind of surprised at verse 18. It says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. I'll be entirely transparent with you. Never said this publicly before the first service. Despite my admiration admiration for John's humility, which I do value greatly, whenever I think about John the Baptist, I always kind of think, he's not really my kind of guy, (laughs) right? That I don't really want to hang out or party with him, right? Um, And it didn't seem like a lot of others did as well. And I think his... Wife would have improved his wardrobe for sure, which happens to a lot of us guys. And also, um, you know, when you read even what's happened in the preceding verses, it's, uh, it's, I, I feel some kind of recoiling a little bit, calling people snakes, harsh words of rebuke. 
I find myself shrinking back, and when Bo asked me some while ago to preach and said this would be the text, I said, really? <laughs> I mean, is this really the text I have to preach? Because I've always kind of harbored this ambivalence towards John, if I might be honest with you. And part of that, I think, is something broken in me. Part of that is, in an odd way, something I think that is kind of natural, because one of the things that happens in the Gospels is that when Jesus shows up, he actually shows up a little differently than John, right? He shows up, yes, he has some sharp words of rebuke for the religious hypocrites, but he actually has a kind of different ministry that is focuses on gentleness and welcome, and such so, so much so that one of the interesting things that happens later in the Gospels is that when John hears about what Jesus is doing, that he welcomes prostitutes and Roman centurions and others graciously, he actually has a little bit of a crisis of faith himself. And he sends his disciples and said, are you the one? Or is there another one to come? And there's no shame. We shouldn't look down on John for that. I think that's, he was doing exactly what God called him to do. He was giving the message that God called him to do. But Jesus's way of showing up was shocking to everyone. Because they expected a Messiah to come in, fire and brimstone, clear out all the Romans, but instead he comes in with amazing gentleness. And so I think it's right of us to maybe be more attracted to Jesus than we are to John the Baptist. And so in that sense, it's not wrong. Not that John the Baptist did anything wrong, but I bring all this up to say that when I read Luke 3, and when I was reading through this again for today, I thought, how is John's message good news? Because it feels so harsh. Anybody else feel that way? Well, I think it is good news, and here's why. John's message is good news because it's the proclamation that Jesus, the true king of the universe, is now here. It's not just a Christmas message. It's the incarnation is changing the world is what John's message is. The message of the gospel, to use the language of Isaiah, is that God is returning to bring salvation and rescue and forgiveness of sins, to lift up the humble, to bring down the arrogant, to fulfill his promise to bring the kingdom of God. The time and the place and of perfect peace and justice and life and health and joy where mercy and compassion and love rule, where relationships and bodies and society are healed and made whole, where God himself dwells in the presence of his people. You see, that is actually the great hope of the Bible, not that you and I will just get personal forgiveness of sins, as important as that is, and then be translated eventually to heaven. That's not the end game of the Bible. The big story of the Bible is that you and I long for a perfect and just reign, a good and perfect king that we can follow and love who will bring a season, a time, an eternal time of justice and peace and joy and life and green and health upon the world. And that's exactly what the Bible's message is. From beginning to end, the whole message of the Bible is God reestablishing his reign from heaven and on earth, from creation to new creation. And the end of the Bible is that vision. And so when John comes preaching, he is preaching the good news. You see, repentance is not a word of harshness. Repentance is good news because it is precisely the invitation to reorient our lives, to turn away from all the things that never satisfy, yeah, that's good. 
things that do not really give us life and recognize with honesty and humility, looking up to God, those, none of those things rec- give me life. I'm going to repent and turn and look to you, the only one who has promises and will bring about true life. What about you? What's the story that's driving your life and your identity? If it's not the true story of the world, where you and I play a secondary role looking to the great king we long for, if it's some other story driving it, you will be disappointed. And some of you are old enough that you've already become disappointed. Some of you are young enough. You haven't suffered enough yet. You haven't been disappointed enough yet. You haven't had enough December 26th yet. All right? I've got six kids. I've experienced a lot of December 26th where, you know, nothing worse for a kid than that day, 364 more days before Christmas, right? As you get older, you begin to realize nothing really satisfies at the end of the day. All the fame, honor, glory, money, nothing satisfies. That's because that's not what you're made for. You are made for a bigger truth and a bigger story. Relationships break, jobs end, bodies fail, bank accounts dwindle, but the call to repent and turn away from hoping in all of those things is an invitation to good news. Wherever you are today, friends, whether this is your first time in church, whether you've been here reading the Bible for 75 years, it is a call to you and me to repent again, to turn our hopes and our hearts and our desires toward God who alone is bringing about his good and perfect reign upon the earth. And that is good news this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we uh, come to you. We, we just confess our hearts are all over the place. I know my heart is constantly fickle in its devotion and allegiance from numbness to apathy to joy and I know here there are people in all different places. Some people today uh, maybe had a fight with their spouse on the way here and just feel trapped and embittered and hopeless. Some have recently gotten a bad medical report and it, it's devastating. Some have a child who is gone far away and just full of regret and maybe shame and don't even want to talk to anybody about it. Our Heavenly Father, in all of our brokenness, um, we thank you that the very reason that feels broken is because you're good and you're able and you are going to restore and you're going to wipe away every tear and you're going to soften hardened and numb hearts All we can do is respond and say, God, we long for that. Even if all we have this morning is, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's all we have this morning, we turn to you and say, we need you to come turn our hearts back to you. Put our hopes in you, God, we pray, by the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.